All right, let's pray, and I'm going to start on um, Christianity and the British Isles. Lord, we thank you for uh, worship this morning, and we ask that you would be with us as we learn. Uh, we're encouraged not simply from uh, British history, but we learn about uh, what you did and what you have been doing across the world and how the gospel spreads and can only be temporarily impeded. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I'm going to start off a couple of weeks. I'm going to cover the British Isles uh, this morning and then the continent next week. So it's basically the Dark and Middle Ages. Um, we're going to look at uh, some maps for just a second to kind of situate ourselves with uh, places that we're going to be mentioning that are not familiar with most of us. So you're not going to be able to see most of this, um, but the ruling elders, got, they got away with putting little b things up there. So, I mean, I figure, what's the harm? Um, so <clears throat> on the left, you've got some names, and I'm partially colorblind, so most of the bottom part looks the same to me anyways. But uh, there's some places, like uh, on the bottom right of England, you have... Uh, Sussex, Essex, Kent, uh, Anglia, Wessex, and then uh, there's Mercia that's just a bit north of there. On the uh, east side towards the middle, there's a place called Dera. Uh, we're going to be mentioning uh, several of those. The rest don't really worry about. On the right, you see kind of a white map, which is a little bit easier to read. You see in the north where Scotland is, there's the Picts. So the, the northern Picts and the southern Picts. Uh, Northumbria is basically the entire middle section of modern-day northern England and a little bit of southern Scotland. Uh, but that's kind of a, a huge region that we'll be mentioning. Uh, that's just kind of the, the center part of the map. The same with Mercia. It's kind of a broader than just a county. It's kind of an area. So East Angles is the same. It's kind of a big place, the uh, southeast portion. But then again, you see uh, Saxons all around the south. And the bottom right on both maps, you're going to have to take note of Kent. So this will reappear, but just need to kind of know where we're talking about. Do you already have a question? Um, <clears throat> so... I would say, uh, let's see. I'm going to get to this. I'm going to get to this in the end. Um, so, part of her family is from Kent, and when she was born, and where she spent most of her life would be where the map says Wessex on the bottom left. So, London is kind of in between Essex, Sussex, Kent. Wessex is kind of in the middle right there, towards kind of the southeast, but she was uh, west of there most of her childhood. Um, we, do we have that in writing? John's asked his question already. So um, we're going to talk about the spread of Christianity. Um, so the, the picture of the book at the very beginning of the slide, the first slide, uh, S.M. Houghton is the, the book that we're using. He has a quote here that says it's, it's not possible 
to say exactly when Christianity first came to southern Britain. So I guess we could just pray and go, go about our business. Um, so early church father Tertullian, writing in the third uh, century, tells us that Christians had by that time penetrated into parts of Britain, which even the Romans had failed to reach. So Tertullian is writing in the 200s. And so obviously the spread of the gospel had probably, I don't know, reached the British Isles. I mean, maybe a hundred years after the crucifixion, maybe sooner, but quite possibly it beat the Romans there. And obviously the Roman roads, et cetera, et cetera, facilitated more of the gospel spreading. But that's kind of ballparking. We don't really know exactly who was the first Christian to land. Uh, we do know that uh, St. Alban was the first martyr uh, in the third or early fourth century in the city of Verulamium, which I uh, believe St. Alban's is on the map, a modern map of London. It's in northern London today, and you can Google it. There is a cathedral that uh, is near or around where he was martyred and where he's buried. And this is what the book said. It's the oldest place of continuous worship in Great Britain. So there's, there's a cathedral. They had services today. Uh, it's Anglican now. And his body is buried near that area. And so that was, again, um, late 200s, early 300s when he was martyred. Um, council and controversy. Uh, we know that there were bishops from York, which is kind of northern London, uh, sorry, northern England, uh, Lincoln in London, who attended a church council in Gaul, which is modern-day France, in um, early 4th century. So there's been a lot of activity in that time. And as, we, as was already mentioned, uh, Augustine's influence, uh, so this would be St. Augustine, which one of you guys spoke about already um, in the 4th century. Uh, so his influence, which was great, uh, was challenged in the 4th and early 5th century by the teachings of Pelagius. Correct me. Did you already cover Pelagianism? Yes. Okay. So... Why am I, my, my mentioning that? Pelagius was from Britain. So, one of the most infamous um, early British Christians was Pelagius. So, Bob's already covered, he denied original sin and asserted that Adam's sin did not affect the entire human race. Man is not born sinful, and he's able to do all of the commands of God. So, this was a grace debate between Augustine and Pelagius. And this is a significant issue because many church historians say that the Reformation was a footnote to Augustine about this debate with the British monk Pelagius and Augustine, uh, St. Augustine. So, <clears throat> can't read all of that, but that's from some leadership training notes that I used a couple of churches ago. Um, where the Confession of Faith in chapter 9 talks about free will. Um, so we debate that. What does free will mean? Uh, Augustinianism, which Calvin and Luther followed, grace is prior and absolutely necessary 
uh, to our regeneration and repentance. So Pelagius says, well, grace really isn't necessary. I, I, can, I can do it on my own because there is no original sin. And so that's a fourth to fifth century significant church debate. We'll come back to it in just a moment. You can uh, forget the rest of that. That's fine. So uh, as much as I like to just talk about England for obvious reasons, I have to talk about Ireland and then Scotland. So we can't leave them out. So they're part of the British Isles. So in Ireland, uh, Roman legions were withdrawing from Britain in about the uh, 4th century, and a boy named Sukat was born in 373 AD uh, in northern Britain, in modern-day town of Dumbarton. He was eventually captured by Picts and Scots. Remember, the Picts were the northern community in Scotland, um, heathens. Uh, he was sold to a tribal leader. He was converted, taking the name of Patricius or Patrick. And so Patrick is a Scot. And uh, at the age of 30, uh, he was directed by the Lord to leave home, and he crossed the Irish Sea. And uh, as we all know, um, preached the gospel. And the church in Ireland flourished by a Scot. So he left home, preached the gospel in Ireland, early fourth, uh, mid-fourth century. Uh, the death of St. Patrick, he died around 463 at the age of 90. Uh, this, there's a hymn entitled Breastplate that's associated with him. Uh, it, uh, I don't know if I did this in Macomb, but we did this in Murfreesboro. The Sunday after St. Patrick's Day, we would use por uh, this portion as our confession of faith. And I would, I would do it at Christ's covenant, but I think every year I just forget um, to put it in there as a confession of faith. Um, but you know, you're familiar, I bind unto myself today the power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to hearken to my need, the wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward, the word of God to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard, Christ to be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ uh, to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, uh, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. I bind unto myself the name, the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one, the one in three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, and Word. A very uh, Trinitarian prayer or song that's very uh, Christ-centered and Christ-focused, that's all the way in Ireland in the 4th century and 5th century uh, because the gospel just continues to spread and there was a Scot who was willing to, willing to leave Scotland and go to Ireland and plant churches and preach. And this is the type of theology uh, that, that they received. I'm sorry. There's still no Catholic church? No, and I'm going to get to that. Just jumping ahead. I mean, in fact, he's not. So let's get to Scotland. So there is 
Somebody by the name of uh, Columba of Donegal was born in Ireland in the 5th century. Quite possibly, um, he's going to be influenced by Patrick's ministry. And so he's born, he was sent uh, by the Lord to Scotland to preach and started a monastery in Iona. That's the Isle of Iona, and that is a modern map of Scotland. Members of this community were in three groups, those conducting daily uh, services, those receiving instruction to become preachers, those who worked with their hands indoors or outdoors. So uh, Columba traveled north all the way to modern-day Inverness in 565 and ended up converting the king that was up there. Again, by the 6th century, the gospel has kind of crossed the Irish Sea, and there's Lots of churches being planted and communities that are forming and stuff's happening. Pagans, heathens, kings are being converted by obedient missionaries. Uh, Now I do a little bit of Scotland and Wales combined. So there was a contemporary of Columba. His name was uh, Kentigern, also called Mungo, who ministered in modern-day Glasgow and its cathedral is named after him. Uh, Cuthbert was in Lothian near modern-day Edinburgh, became bishop of Lindisfarne, and died in about 687. And again, really, there's not much known about early Welsh uh, Christianity, but a man named David who died around 601 has a cathedral in Pembrokeshire named after him. He and many other bishops, it's recorded, were actively preaching against uh, Pelagianism. Uh, So... Again, I'll come back to certain aspects of Wales, um, but you see that there's interesting kind of missionary efforts and developments now in Ireland and in Scotland, both in the central and in northern Scotland, uh, as well as in Wales, to the point to where they've already sent bishops. We already said that in the early 4th century, all the way to France. So Christianity has developed quite a bit. Uh, transitions between, again, we're painting in a very, with a very broad brush, um, 6th to 10th centuries. If anybody's taught any type of history, they'd probably like throw up at that slide. Like, you, what are you doing? There's so much. It's like, I know, I know, there's so much. Uh, from the 5th to 6th centuries, the church was flourishing in Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. But there were, there were heathen uh, Angles, Jutes, and Saxons, which were evading from the east. Throughout Britain, a lot of the Christians fled to West and North Wales and Cumbria, which was, I think, I'll pull the map up again in a minute. Eventually, there was evangelism of Angleland, which, if you remember, the Angles were on the east side, southeast side of England, modern day. Uh, Kent, Wessex, Mercia, Northumbria, other areas, so middle to southern England for the most part. Um, This took place in two directions. Okay, so the lots, lots of conquering of lands and Christians are fleeing and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then eventually there was evangelism. So we're going to talk about from two directions to Bobby's earlier reference. First, from the Celtic church that we've been discussing up to this point, which was independent at this time from the Roman church. So all of this mission activity that started I mean, before Tertullian, maybe, maybe within 100 years of the crucifixion, has no connection, really, to Jerusalem. 
uh, to Rome. So it's just been spreading and going about on its own. Uh, Aidan was born in Lindisfarne, Scotland, and was responsible for bringing the gospel to uh, Northumbria, which is in the central part, central region of, of England. There we go. Here's the map again. Uh, so you see in red on the right, right in the center northern part of England is uh, Northumbria. And a lot of these people that were coming from the east, the Angles and things like that, most of the eastern part, uh, you know, they're setting up uh, little fiefdoms, little kingdoms that have nothing to do with Christianity. And so the gospel, there are believers there, and the gospel is starting to take hold. And then um, we talk about, uh, at the same time that there's a lot of evangelism going on from various nameless missionaries that we don't know, from the Celtic church tradition, we have um, Pope Gregory the Great. Question! Yeah, that was in reference to early 4th century. We're going we're gonna to go back a little bit and talk about the influence of the Catholic Church. But I, I was looking at that a little bit this week. I personally don't know much about the Celtic Church tradition. Now, I'm curious as well. Yeah. Yeah. Not yet. We're, we're about to get to the... We're, just now, we're now about to talk about the... Roman Catholic Church, yeah. Um, the Roman Church was led by Gregory I, who sent uh, a Benedictine monk by the name of Augustine to Britain in 597. It's not the Augustine from 200 years earlier. So it's someone who decided to name their son Augustine. Someone else. So uh, as a boy, Gregory... The, the, the guy who would become Pope, he had apparently seen fairer-haired, I don't know if they were from Ireland or Scotland or what, or Norway or what, fairer-haired boys unfortunately sold as slaves and he inquired about them and someone had just kind of made the suggestion, well, they're from Angoland. He was like, what's that? And so he had a little bit of a history lesson. And so when he actually... Uh, the, well, they, the people that said he's from Angoland, and uh, he, he did research and found out about Northumbria and Dara, which was one of the little ta- counties in uh, central eastern England. And he, was, uh, he had pity on them. There's none of those people. They were, they were all from a pagan background in that area. So he had associated people that looked like that from Angoland with being non-Christians. And so when he became the pope... Uh, he thought, we, we need to bring the, the Roman church to England, Engelland. So uh, this is part of the reason why he uh, commissioned a monk to actually go and take the gospel there. So uh, the original missionaries landed in Kent. Remember Kent? The very southern eastern portion of modern-day England. That, that's what it's called today, Kent. Uh, <clears throat> Ethelbert was the pagan king. Uh, Ethelbert had recently married a woman named Bertha, a Christian daughter of a uh, Frankish king in Paris. And 
Ethelbert permitted her to carry on Christian worship in a ruined kind of ancient church location of St. Martin, which was outside of uh, modern-day Canterbury, which is in Kent. Uh, And it it survived from Roman times. So Augustine, when he got there, was well-received. He had fruitful evangelism and created the Christian center in Canterbury. So it was kind of like the Roman church had kind of planted itself. He died in 604. So the Roman church in about the 6th century starts to have more of a place to do ministry, uh, which makes sense. It's at the very bottom right of the British Isles. That's where they started in the town of Canterbury. So here we talk a little bit about the Celtic church and the Roman church, and I probably can't answer a ton of questions about all the background about what were the differences. I didn't have a ton of time. I'm tasking Rachel and Bobby to research that and then bring us, they're going to bring us a full written report by next Sunday on all the differences between the Celtic and Roman church, because I don't know. Some of them drank Guinness. I don't know. Maybe um, before he died, Augustine made, he did make contact with Christians in Wales from the Celtic church. He held meetings to try to bridge any gaps. And at the time, uh, Edwin ruled Dara and eventually all of Northumbria. Uh, Kent at this time in the very Southeast was really one of the only major Christian kingdoms. So the Celts didn't really have like uh, as much authority over any area in England like the Catholic Church had formed in Kent. So Edwin had all of this kind of authority as a pagan uh, at the time. And uh, Edwin married uh, a lady named Ethelbert, the daughter of a king who had been converted by Augustine during his journey to meet the Celtic Church members. Uh, Ethelbert's dad granted permission for the marriage because Edwin said he could practice, uh, she could practice Christianity and, and he would actually give serious consideration to uh, the gospel of Jesus. Ethelbert was accompanied to Northumbria for the wedding by a Kentish monk, Paulinus of Canterbury, who preached before all of the king's court. And eventually, uh, the text re- reads, all that were foreordained to eternal life believed from the book of Acts. And baptisms took place Easter Sunday, April the 12th, 627 in modern-day York. And so there was, there was basically a revival. And Edwin professed faith. And again, he was one of these pagan leaders who had a huge swath of territory under his uh, influence. And so... Uh, Paulinus from Kent remained and preached for about six years in middle to northern England. So uh, Dara, the southern portion of Northumbria, agreed eventually to the teaching from Canterbury and so from Rome. Bernicia, the southern part of the region, continued to follow, uh, the northern part of the region continued to follow Aden from Iona, which you remember is kind of western Scotland. This would be from the Celtic church. Uh, So there is a bit of a gap. 664, a man named Oswy, the king of Northumbria, he called a conference or a synod at Whitby. He was in the Celtic church, but he listened to Wilfred, the abbot of Ripon, who represented Canterbury. Coleman of Lindisfarne, the successor of Aidan, represented the Celtic church. Oswy was convinced by Wilfred 
Not long after, most of England accepted the Roman church. It's about the middle 7th century, the Celtic church kind of just agrees to come underneath Rome. So the first council of the whole church in England was 668 by Theodore of Tarsus, the new Archbishop of Canterbury. So major transition, 7th century. Further missions occurring at the council in 668 in Hertford, all of England was divided into dioceses with each having its own bishop. So whatever had happened before was just maybe locally decided in the Celtic church or what so have you. Um, Rome sent a man named John, the arch chanter, to teach Anglo-Saxons how to sing the praises of God, to appreciate church music. Shortly thereafter, missionaries were sent to the European continent, uh, which we're going to cover. That's, that's next week. Uh, one later name to note from a couple of centuries later is Alfred the Great, who was, uh, he ruled as king of Wessex, which is like west of um, Kent in southern England, where Jody spent a lot of her life. Uh, from 871 to 899, he vastly spread Christian education. He engaged in translating a man, uh, Bede's uh, history book, from Latin into Anglo-Saxon, as well as many of the Psalms, and uh, he couldn't even read himself until he was 38 years old. Um, but <clears throat> Alfred is kind of a big deal in British history and became a believer and helped continue the spread of Roman Catholicism in the 9th and 10th centuries. So I just mentioned uh, a guy named Bede, so I don't know if anybody else has heard of him or read of his book. Uh, I read it in an English literature class at ECS as a senior in high school, and he was writing in 735, so the 8th century. But he, a lot of what we just discussed and the individuals and what they were doing and where they were doing it from is from his book that Alfred translated from the original Latin into some local languages. So a lot of the connecting of the dots historically, where a lot of this stuff we don't know a lot about. Uh, but a lot of what we do know is from that book, which is about 1599 on Amazon. So if you're, as you guys are doing your research this week, you could probably consult that resource um, so it's been, it's been kind of dull and boring and um, weird so far, I understand, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring it down a little bit into the modern day. Um, so I took a trip with my future wife in, let's see, when was that? This has been right after we got married in 2008 to, it's been a while, uh, to, to the UK we went, we went to Kent, which is in southeast England. That's the gate of the uh, Canterbury Cathedral. Now, um, you probably can't see it because of the lighting, but I do think that the gate was built before the Starbucks on the bottom right there, if you see that. So, um, priests... Priests like to drink coffee, so it's no wonder that eventually a Starbucks comes right next to the entrance 
to the to the cathedral. Um, so uh, that that is that is not what was standing there. Uh, you know, during August, Monk Augustine's life, that's a, a gate that's built much later. But Canterbury Cathedral has a, a ton of history because as we just discussed, by the seventh century, that little town of Canterbury was bustling with Christianity because Gregory sent a monk there. And nobody was necessarily was a believer when he arrived. And then Kent became one of the only kingdoms in England for a long time that was Christian. And it it's on the water. It's, it's the nearest port. If you want to go f- to Calais in France today, you go through Kent. That's another picture of the gate that I took. And uh, so after the Starbucks was built, they had to have something to eat. So apparently they had to build a subway near the gate. Uh, so, and this is really expert photography, if you can't tell. I mean, this is just top-notch You've already had a question, John. Do you need another one? Yeah, go ahead. I didn't graduate from public school in Greenwood, so I... Yeah. No, I can't recite that for you right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, okay, so you're talking about, uh, I know you're confused like me. So, so John's talking about the Canterbury Tales from Geoffrey Chaucer, which is another generation from everything that we discussed. So I'm glad you brought it up, crazily enough, uh, because Canterbury is often known for, for Geoffrey Chaucer, for the Canterbury Tales, all of that from kind of the late Middle Ages, or the turn of the millennium. So what we've been discussing is why those things were occurring. It's, it's because of the history before it. Now, now you know why the Canterbury was such a big deal, that they're, to this day the Archbishop of Canterbury is the leader of the Church of England because from the 7th century, that's been the center of Christianity for the whole British Isle. So I can't tell you why your teacher made you recite that remember it, but the, we've gone through the history before Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales to say, how did he get there? Why is it a big deal that Thomas a. Beckett was murdered outside the cathedral? Well, because that Christianity had been thriving there for centuries. Um, it, can, you, can you call your, call your teacher in Greenwood? I don't know. Um, these, are, uh, these are some pictures. So a lot of this stuff would probably be more in Chaucer's day, a little bit after Chaucer, the development of the cathedral. And I'm just using Canterbury as a little microcosm for everything that we've been talking about. That is inside the gate, some pictures of the actual cathedral itself. If you've been to the continent of Europe, or if you've been to the UK, many of the towns, Salisbury has a cathedral, and it's in the middle of a field, and you're walking through this quaint little town, and you turn a corner, and there's this Gothic ancient cathedral, which you cannot picture. You can't grasp in a picture how much detail and intricacy has gone into this. And part of what we've been discussing, though, is the centuries of Christians that were there before. Most of this was 
developed. So that's the entrance, which again, from here, you can't really see the uh, intricate uh, architecture. Uh, the hallway there on the right, you get a little bit of a sense of how big it is with the pictures of the people there. Um, I'm going to draw a little bit of a connection to today and say that this was taken, so in the foreground is Jody and her grandmother, who they called Nanny. And Nanny, when I met Jody, was still living in Kent. Nanny's son, my father-in-law, just retired uh, within the last two months from the Church of England. So he's a believer, and Jody's a believer, and uh, Nanny was a believer. And uh, I asked Jody this week, and I said, where did Nanny grow up? And she said, Kent. And now I'd I don't know how far back. I didn't call my father-in-law and say, give me all this history. Um, But it was just kind of weird that uh, I didn't know a lot of this history until really researching it. What had happened in Kent or in Canterbury uh, before Chaucer? Because they don't know much. And uh, this is outside the the cathedral itself. I just took, again, expert photography, I know, expert. This is a monument you can't read it from where you are, uh, to British veterans of World War I. It's interesting, it's there. And I, I took a photo of the bottom names, which again, you can't read from where you're sitting. But on the right column, second from the bottom, is a man with the last name York. And that was Nanny's brother, who was killed in World War I. I trust Nanny was raised as a believer and that he possibly was a believer. Um, so they're all from Kent. And uh, why, why am I mentioning some of this? Here's, here's something that I take away from this as a big picture. The crucifixion around 33 AD, Christians enter the British Isles by maybe, maybe the second century. We don't quite know who it was. We don't know really how they got there. A historian say that they may have beaten the Romans, to the British Isles. We have Patrick from Scotland starting a church in Ireland. We have Columba in Ireland who starts a church in Scotland. Okay, this is about 4th century. Lots of heathens and non-Christian kings and things like that are converted through the Celtic church in the 5th and the 6th centuries. Augustine brings the Roman church and unifies Christianity in the 7th century with major influence from Canterbury and Kent. And all of this tied back to the crucifixion and the spreading of the gospel eventually, I think, reaches and stays this whole time, stays for centuries in the county of Kent to the point to where it reached Nanny, her son David, his daughter Jody, and her children who are members in Hernando, Mississippi. Blood relatives of members of the community in Kent. That, that dates back centuries and centuries because in many ways, unnamed missionaries 
who weren't even necessarily commissioned, found themselves on the British Isles amongst heathens and shared the gospel. We don't even know their names. I don't know why they were there, but eventually, Columba and Patrick said, I'll take the gospel beyond my homeland in obedience to Christ. Any other thoughts or takeaways from the community here? And we, and we won't know <clears throat> the people that will be impacted from the new building on Mount Pleasant. So n- none of the people that, mention, that we were mentioning have any idea of the impact that they had in Canterbury for a millennium. But it's, it's, it's sad but encouraging that my wife and I, we, we moved over here. So she was kind of like Columba and Patrick. I, I brought her with me. And uh, prob- I, I'm, I'm missing the timeline. <clears throat> I, I, it was either the end of 2008 after this trip or the beginning of 2009, she was pregnant with Ellie. Her, her grandmother, she and her grandmother were really close. Like just, Jody's a nurse, and so if Nanny was sick, she'd get off shift and drive from wherever she was on, in Bristol or Bath and drive through London and go all the way to Kent and take care of her, and they had just a great relationship. And uh, Nanny was old when I met her, and... Uh, she didn't really like my last name. She was like, "Punk? How do you say that?" It was a so. I still I still liked her, but uh, <clears throat> she was in poor health and ended up having to have surgery and in, in an in an office um, at Covenant College. Our first year of marriage, she was on the phone with her for the last time. And again, I'm losing the timeline. It was because she was pregnant with Ellie already, or. Unfortunately, the job that she had our first year of marriage was not fair, and it was too much work, and she couldn't leave, and we were poor. Um, She did not get to go to the funeral. So that's kind of a a wound that isn't going to heal. But because of the faithfulness of brothers and sisters before, Nanny was a believer. As, was, as is her son, as is her granddaughter and her great-grandchildren. And so there will be a reunification because of the gospel. Yes, Tim. The question is, what is the state of Christianity? Yeah, what is the state of Christianity today? Like here, a lot of the mainline uh, Church of England, my, my father-in-law is disturbed with because he was trained at Trinity College Bristol by people like J.I. Packer, uh, and that's, that's a, a generation long gone over there. The gospel is still there, still preached. I spoke on Monday morning with someone who used to be RUF at UT Martin, so used to be in our presbytery, but a year ago, moved to England as a missionary. And so I, I was talking with him on Monday about how he's doing, and uh, we're, we have an MTW committee meeting on Thursday night of our presbytery where we're going to discuss bringing him on board for support. 
but also our committee needs to visit some of our missionaries that haven't been visited, some of our elders that are overseas. So I'm going to be going, my family's already going to the UK in May. It's been way too long since Jody got to go back. And I'm going to talk to the committee on Thursday night about whether or not I can spend some time with him. And he's supporting Presbyterian churches in London. And so I'll get to meet a British Presbyterian pastor uh, in Ealing. But also one of my classmates came from Duke Street Baptist Church to get trained. And he was in the process of basically becoming a Presbyterian at Covenant Seminary. He worked under Liam Golliger, who's now at uh, 10th Pres in Philadelphia. So they both left the Baptist Church. He went back to London, and he's planted a Presbyterian church. Obviously, it's more going on than just Presbyterian churches. Um, but particularly the Reformed world and the Presbyterian world is pretty small. And I would say all of the UK, but the church in Scotland, the official church, is Presbyterian. Uh, so someday when we get to the Reformation, one of us will talk about the church in Scotland and what's happened there. Uh, but I would say, yeah, there's a lot of missions work uh, to be done in the UK. And my, we're going to be staying with my sister-in-law in Bristol, which is Western England. I don't know that there's a Reformed Presbyterian church within a drivable distance in that whole city. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, well, I'll, you tell me and then I'll tell her. Yeah. But the church in England is very much under, under a fight with liberalism. Church in Scotland lost that fight a long time ago. It's a fair question. I'm not sure. It may depend, too, on where you are and how big the town is. I mean, if you were, even back in 2008, if you were on the tube station in London, most of the people you probably saw were Sikhs and Muslims. And, I mean, it's very multicultural. Uh, so I, there may, I think the real question is, is there a need for church planting and evangelism? And the answer is a definite yes. Yes, Paul. Yeah, the, the church is still alive and thriving. So uh, when I met Jody, she was living in Guilford in the county of Surrey, which is just southwest of London. So she was a part of a, a fairly big, thriving Anglican church. And I would say preached the gospel. Uh, I met several of the ministers, lots of really great people. Some of them supported us when we went to seminary. Um, so it's, there's a church. I mean, it's, it's there in different denominations, some of them non-denominational. Um, but again, from, from our perspective, and thinking through the work of the International Presbyterian Church, one of the denominations there, I mean, it's, it's definitely growing, but it's very, very small. Yes, Sean? And to that, yeah, and to that point, what we're going to discuss next week is how the gospel shifted up to the British Isles, <clears throat> where it's going to go back to where it came from. It's going to end up coming back to the continent. And I think we probably could benefit greatly from Peruvian missionaries in Hernando. I mean, that's part of what we probably need to ask them is like, could, could you spare us a few people? who speak Spanish fluently and uh, can help us. Um, so 
Any other questions that I can't really answer? Okay, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this time of studying your, your history, the history of your world, and the history of your word spreading um, from people that don't have um, records, um, histories of them doing so, and that's not why we do things. We do things out of obedience. Uh, help us and encourage us with stories of church history of the gospel spreading to go and do likewise. Christ, then we pray. Amen.